Welcome to Doctrine and Devotion, a podcast that explores Christian faith and practice from a Reformed Baptist perspective. My name is Joe Thorne. I'm the lead pastor of Redeemer Fellowship in St. Charles, Illinois. Now, this weekend, uh, after I record this, before this is released, I am going to be away uh, on our men's retreat, our annual men's retreat for Redeemer Fellowship. So that means that Jimmy and I can't record as we normally do on Saturday morning. So uh, it's Friday. And uh, Jimmy couldn't get on because he's, he's tied up at work. But I was able to bring on one of our friends, Pastor Nick Batzig. He's back. <laughs> it's good to be back. I like that uh, that Bucky's t-shirt you're, you're sporting there. Ooh, thank you, sir. Love me some Bucky's. The highlight of my vacation was uh, stopping at Bucky's a few times. And yeah, I wish we had one up here. It's like Walmart meets a Cracker Barrel meets... A really awesome gas station. Yeah, it's it is. That's what I tell people. It's like uh, if there is a gas station in the New Jerusalem when it descends, it would be Bucky's. It's It'll the closest Bucky's. we've got yeah. to it. Yes. It's got some good food in there and some T-shirts and all of that. So, um, how you doing, man? What's going on this week? Doing good. Yeah, getting back preaching uh, morning and evening Sunday. I had last weekend off and. Looking forward to get back in there. So I'm preaching Ephesians 2, 4 through 10, 6 through 10 in the morning. And then I'm doing the seventh commandment in the evening. So nice. looking Very forward fun. to it. Good stuff. Yeah, I got a break this weekend because of the men's retreat. So Jimmy's preaching and uh, I'm hanging and uh, listening to some teaching out there at some retreat center camp, whatever. So uh, yeah, that's going to be, that's going to be good. Well, listen, man, it's, 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 uh, it's September which means uh, for some people, it's already Halloween season. Like people, people, Halloween nuts are like Christmas nuts, right? Christmas people basically start November 1. You know, they, they don't even care. Like uh, they start putting the, dec- the decorations up. And I, I tend to be that way. I like to get going. Um, but Halloween people, they start going, man, September comes and they get all their spooky stuff out. And they start watching more of the scary movies and they, they get into all this stuff. And, uh, most of our listeners know that I'm a, I'm a fan of scary movies, horror movies of various kinds. And, uh, and one of, one of the tropes that comes up a lot in, in, in some vampire movies or evil movies is, uh, people seek refuge in a church building. You know, they go to the church building, they just call it the church, right? But they go to the church building because there, ah, devil can't get in. He can't walk into that church, you know, holy ground, sacred ground, all of that symbols and all that. And then every once in a while, you'll, there'll be a movie where, uh, or a show where they're like, the, the, the vampire is like, yeah, bro, that doesn't work. I'm coming right in, which I think is a bit more realistic. Not that vampires are out there, but that evil is out there and it doesn't really have a hard time getting into an assembly. It's not hard for the devil to make access into an assembly and to influence things when people are out of sorts, we'll say. I mean, in the, in the softest way. At least that's my take. And um, I came across an article of yours that I thought was really good. We're going to be linking to it in the show notes about um, when... What is the title of that article? When Satan... Oh man, I'm drawing a blank on it. I think it was um, when Satan is in the church. That's what it is. When Satan is in the church. Uh, It's a great article. It's really good. And I really just wanted to talk to you about it because in that article, you really helpfully and biblically sort of dismantle uh, some of the, the preconceived, rather fanciful notions of the devil and what he might do if he comes to church. 
but you mostly spend time on showing what he actually does. And so uh, can you talk a little bit about this? You know, the, most of the people, when they think of, oh man, if Satan's going to wreak havoc, it's going to be demon possession. It's going to be, you know, crazy experiences. Um, in your study of scripture, what have you found as it relates to the devil's activity in a local church? Yeah, thank you. Um, I I actually really love this subject because it doesn't get much airtime in our circles, as you know. I think if there's a weakness with the modern post-Enlightenment, if I can say that, Reformed Church, is that we don't talk enough about principalities and powers. We don't talk right. enough about spiritual warfare. That was not indicative of our tradition, as you know, um, you've got Thomas Brooks's Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices, which is just a great, I would encourage your listeners to pick up a copy of the little Banner of Truth appeared in paperback right. on that. That's a phenomenal book. Um, if you want something more substantive, Richard Gilpin wrote Demologia Sacra, and that's a, you know, it's a manual on spiritual warfare. And then if you want something very substantive, as you know, you get a William Gurnall's three volumes, The Christian in Complete Armor which is going to take you like six years to read through unabridged. Um, but, but they were just, they were, you know, basic examples of the Puritans emphasis on spiritual warfare and their understanding of how significant it was for Christians to be tuned in to the realities of, you know, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but yeah. against principalities and power, spiritual host of wickedness in the heavenly places. And, and, and how we need to be trained. There, there is a little verse in the Bible. I think it's in 2 Corinthians 11, where Paul is talking about Satan deceiving people away from the simplicity of the gospel, mm. the way that he deceived Eve. I think it's 2 Corinthians 11, 3. And, and somewhere in that context, Paul says, we are not ignorant of right. his devices. That might be in actually 1 Corinthians 5, where in the context of dealing too harshly with someone who had been disciplined and then had come back and repented, Paul says, if you deal excessively severe with such a one when they've come back to Christ and the church, that you may be, you may be used by Satan. You may be part of his mm -hmm. devices to work in the church. So, so I think the scriptures give us a number of, of sort of trigger points for us to see what are the common ways that the evil one and his host of fallen yeah. angels work in attacking the church. Because you and I both know that the, the chief thing Satan has in his crosshairs is the church of yeah. Jesus, because he can't get to Christ. He's going to come at us and he has a thousand different uh, wiles and devices, but he has, he has certain ones. And I tried to highlight two of these in that blog post that you referenced um, back in 2020. The first, and, and this was really born out of, I had a professor in seminary who challenged us to read the New Testament in a biblical theological way. So look at the progression of Revelation and do that with regard to demonic activity. Mm. He said, and what you're going to find is there's a very concentrated focus of demon possession, demonic activity in the days of Christ, because this is the fullness of time. This is Satan's chief opposition, his moment to shine, as it were, against the coming of the kingdom of God and, and the seed of the woman. So that's why everything seems so heightened in right. Israel, why you have little boys falling down in epilepsy because they're demon possessed and throwing themselves in fires and all this demon possession. 
And that carries over into the book of Acts, obviously, which is why so many people are confused about this. If it was so prevalent then, why wouldn't we say it's still prevalent today? But one of the interesting things, and I'll I'll let you talk after this because I don't want to just go on and on about this, but one of the interesting things I noticed as a young Christian was that when you come into the pastoral epistles, when you come into those later epistles, there is less and less and less, almost nothing about demon possession. And everything is about the evil one's influence in spreading false teaching in the church, causing division through members of the church. And then, as I've already referenced in 1 Corinthians 5, in response to a repentant brother or sister dealing excessively harshly with them. Mm. So they seem to be the, the three, if I can say that. And the two you could categorize is false teaching and then false living and yeah, how yeah. he works through individuals in the church in those ways to affect and to try to shake the faith of the people of God and destroy the fellowship of the saints. Yeah, that's been largely how uh, how I think about it. Um, you know, I and because you we see demonic activity throughout scripture uh, across the board. Um, but the what it looks like varies. And even when it comes to like miracles uh and whatnot, you have uh upticks of, of miracles with Moses or some of the prophets, but otherwise not, not much. And then with the apostles, Jesus and the apostles, lots of miracles. And these are these situations or eras when revelation is being given and signs and wonders are happening to establish the work of God. Um, so I, I've seen that and I, I sort of equated like the satanic activity being so intense when it comes to demon possession in the new Testament with the fact that this, this is Christ establishing his kingdom here. And we don't see the demonic possession, at least not like that in the Old Testament. We see some stuff, we see some situations, but nothing like we are, like the intensity is, is really there. And so um, as I've looked at it, you know, in church history, what it, what, see, what, I've, what, I, what I've read was that among many, um, when there is what they would consider demonic possession or oppression, uh, it was rare and it it was they they simply sat together and prayed for long periods of time and read scripture and then it came to an end like it wasn't dramatic it wasn't crazy and i know that there are different views on how demonic possession and oppression works if it works at all today and i know that i've seen some crazy things before mm -hmm. my conversion i've seen it was weird as i've seen overt what i believe to be demonic possession uh I've, I've i've seen i've seen a lot of crazy stuff because of my involvement yeah, me too. in the occult now as a christian i haven't seen hardly any of that dramatic stuff um but i have seen i think we've all seen demonic activity it just doesn't look like what we think it's supposed to look like because demonic activity in our mind is scary and it's you know it's dramatic and it's the kind of thing that would be on a on an hbo plus tv show when in reality, the reason the devil can be so successful in in leading people astray is because it doesn't look like that. It actually looks rather reasonable. It, it feels sensible and it feels good. And yeah, like like I want to entertain this and, and, and move further with it. That's sort of what I've seen in most of my experience with with people going astray and I, and what I believe to be like demonic deceit has, uh, has always been a, a rather, um, soft approach to, um, to destroying a soul. You know what I mean? It still leads to destruction, but it's, it's a softer approach 
more so than what we're seeing and in some of the some of these dramatic situations in the New Testament. Yeah, I'll say a couple things. First, I I don't think it's beyond the scope of the working of the evil one that demonic possession still occurs today. I I believe that it does. I like you was around a lot of really messed up people before I was converted and have questions about whether, you know, I had been around kids that had been possessed because I experienced some really crazy stuff. Um, what I do see, though, in the New Testament is a limiting principle that mm-hmm. after Christ exercises Satan, right? He says, now is the judgment of the yep. world. Now shall the ruler of the world be cast out, yep. exercised, John 12. He's talking about the cross and the resurrection, right? Paul tells us he disarmed principalities and yep. powers, um, having made a public spectacle over them in his death, Colossians 2. Um, so, the, and there's a binding of the strong man, Matthew yep. 12, right? No one enters a strong man's house and mm-hmm. plunders his good unless he is stronger than he wait binds him. Wait, 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 whoa, that, that's whoa, not, whoa. This is like amillennialism. What are you, what are Ooh. you doing? Binding the strong uh, yeah. man? He's bound? I, I was just quoting scripture, man. Okay. Yeah. Jesus says when he sends out like the 70, he says, like, oh, I saw Satan falling like lightning. Like there's all of, I, I totally see that as well. I, I agree. I think that's really important. Yeah. So th- th- there's a limiting principle. It doesn't mean that Satan is inactive. The best illustration I've ever heard from this is from a book name by a guy named Greer, last name Greer. I think Banner of Truth published it called The Momentous Event. Mm. And he likens Satan bound, the limiting of Satan's influence to Al Capone when he was in prison in Chicago. <laughs> and he he said, well, he was inactive. He couldn't just do whatever he wanted to do. He was still the most powerful man right. in America. And with a phone call, he ha- could have had all the businesses shut down because he could have had all the shipping industry taken out because of his union yeah. you know power that's a great and that's i a great think that's analogy. a good illustration that satan's not inactive but he is bound he's limited so that the gospel goes to the nations so i think that's why i i don't necessarily think third world countries more demon possession america more rationalistic we don't need it i've heard that a lot i i do think we probably medicate and institutionalize people that may be possessed i don't know i'm just saying you know, we do tend to shove the craziest people well, away. It's a weird thing because in scripture, and this is where I try to be really careful because in scripture, you see the people that are demon possessed show the same symptoms as people that aren't demon possessed, but mm-hmm. have physical afflictions. And so sometimes it's just a physical affliction and sometimes it's demon possession. And, you know, when this comes up, especially today because we're much more sensitive to mental health and whatnot. You know, I'm always, my first thought is not demon possession. When I'm seeing symptoms, I'm treating them as they should normally be treated, getting uh, counselors, references, and all of that. But that doesn't mean that we write off the potential impact of, of demonic activity for sure. Right, yeah. But the w- one thing that's so interesting to me, Joe, is that when you come to the pastoral epistles, so first, second Timothy, Titus, you know, this is this is the great apostle Paul saying to Timothy and to men like us and to every minister after him, he's basically saying, Look, there's coming a time when you won't have apostles to mm-hmm. appeal to. Yeah. And what you need to know is this is how your ministry is to be carried that's out. Right. And what is noticeably absent in the pastoral epistles is any word about how to exercise demons. Yeah. I think this is one of those overlooked insights of That's the millennia good. that if, if, if the apostles were casting out demons, then you would think their antecedent 
analogous office bearers, right? The the ministers of the gospel throughout the rest that they would have those yeah. powers. And yet he doesn't tell Timothy anything or Titus anything about demon possession. In fact, the only thing he talks about is doctrines of demons. Yeah. And then how Satan sows discord and how he tries to move people away from the truth of the gospel and how he tries to divide and conquer in the church. So I that that's the gist of what I'm trying to say in that article is that I think his ordinary tactics yeah. are a lot more, like you said, subtle and sophisticated and less sort of shocking supernatural phenomenon. What's interesting is um, I think it was in uh, the Satanic Bible by Anton LaVey. But Anton LaVey wrote this. I just don't remember where I read it. This was back in the day, of course. And he was saying, yeah, yeah, it's great, guys. Um, you know, do, do your rock and roll. It's all, it's all fine. Uh, he said, but what we need are people that are composing classical music. What we need are, are people that are entering into politics. What we need are, and he's making these arguments like, Ooh, the hard-edged rock and roll, like yeah, the, the, the Eddie, the Eddie Vedder is too obvious, right? It's like you got to go, you got to go more, you got to get into like elevate things and and make things approachable and beautiful. The devil appears as an angel of light. That doesn't just mean that he is beautiful. It means that his work itself appears to be pleasing and beautiful. And this is, I mean, again, this is why I th- I think you're right that. You know, the the fact that it's gone or it's 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 not it's not in the pastoral epistles. I mean, not in any type of, of exorcism. Um, is 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 telling, especially since he does seem to cover. I'm, I'm thinking about it right now. I can't think. Is there anything he didn't cover that is essential to ministry? I can't think of anything. But I also was thinking about this, like demon possession and exorcism was a thing in the first century. Like that was a thing. It wasn't just the apostles who were casting out demons. Uh, the Pharisees were casting out demons. The demons and casting them out, that was a thing that transcended various uh, cults and religions and whatnot. And so uh, I don't know. I mean, I know that this was a, a a tactic that the devil used, truly used, but it also seemed to be like, well, this is in the zeitgeist. This is like a thing that people are aware of. So I'm going to leverage this as a demonstration of my power. And then Jesus shows up and says, nice job. I'm going to crush that. Like you've got no power. You can, you can try and utilize this thing because it's so, it's such an issue today, but it's not going to work. I wonder if that's a part of it as well, because it wasn't limited to Christians. It wasn't limited to the apostles. Right. Yeah. I think you have such a concentrated um, picture of demon activity and demonic possession in the gospels and in uh, the book of Acts, because it was necessary that those things were there counterfeiting, right? And yeah. that's a big principle. Satan is a counterfeiter. I would encourage your listeners to read Vern Poitras's book, uh, The Return of the King on the Book of Revelation, where he really deals in depth. Uh, Poitras also has a couple articles about Satan as a counterfeiter. And he's counterfeiting, as you've said, what was prevalent then, even with the Jewish exorcist and whatnot. But I think it was also necessary that there was that heightened thing to show the power of Christ and the power of Mm -hmm. his apostles at that period for the foundation of the new covenant church and the spreading of the gospel in the nations, that once that takes place, I think it's fine to say Satan shifts gears and tactics. Hey, I wanted to just piggyback real quick on that quote you made about, um, about you know, not just needing rock musicians, but classical musicians and this and that. A.W. Pink has a little article called Another Gospel, 
And he says this, the apostles of Satan are not saloon keepers and white slave traffickers, but are for the most part ordained ministers. Hmm. Thousands of those who occupy our modern pulpits are no longer engaged in presenting the fundamentals of the Christian faith, but have turned aside from the truth and have given heed to fables. Instead of magnifying the enormity of sin and setting forth its eternal consequences, they minimize it by declaring that sin is merely ignorance or the absence of good. Instead of warning their hearers to flee flee from the wrath to come, they make God a liar by declaring that he's too loving Mm-hmm. and too merciful to send any creatures to eternal torment. And he goes on to say, they don't hold forth the righteousness of God through faith in Christ. And therefore, they are they are the ones that pose as angels of light, and yet they're ministers of Satan. Yeah. I thought that was real helpful. Well, it, it's powerful. And again, it, it, it's tr- I, I believe that to be true. I love Pink, by the way. I think Pink. I, I too. I, he's got his issues. We all do. I've got my issues. But man, his little book uh, on the sovereignty of God. I read that thing as a very young Christian, maybe year two, at uh, year three. But uh, though the first time I read it, it there are sentences that are imprinted in my mind. There are concepts that he articulated in a specific way that have just been imprinted that I've that have never left me. I've been grateful. I've been grateful for him. So let's get into it, Nick. Let's talk about what are the what are the ways in which we should anticipate Satan showing up at church, right? Especially, listen, if you've got something good going, and I've experienced this, I know you've experienced this, in the midst of something that, like the next thing, like, wow, God seems to be at work, some great things are happening in our local church, inevitably, Satan goes to work. It's almost like there's like, oh yeah, he, he wants to take his shot, mm-hmm. you know? And, um, and so I've experienced that. What are those biblically uh, proven, uh, popular like, with, with Satan and his hosts, ways that they, that they seek to uh, attack the people of God? By the way, this is the whole book of Revelation, and everybody, if you, right. <laughs> Revelation is really about the victory of Jesus and His people over the devil and His. And uh, it, it, until you get that, uh, you're going to have a hard time with it. So, what are what are some of the ways? Yeah, so I mean, clearly, you can say from outside the church, working on the church, persecution, as you've yep. noted, the book of Revelation, stirring up the nations to hate the church, the people of God to persecute them. We should expect persecution. And and with that, right, Satan loves to tempt the people of God to turn back. That's the whole point of so much of the New Testament is we're not going back. You know, our suffering is light. We have a far more eternal weight of glory. So certainly working on it from without. And then obviously all the temptations in the world, the flood of immorality and everything else that we feel on a daily basis, weekly basis, crashing in, trying to draw us away from Christ and away from paths of righteousness into sin. But I think within the church, I think the principal way is through false teaching. So again, Second Corinthians 11.3, Paul said, I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he who comes preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. So Paul is not a discernment blogger, but as an apostle, he's acutely aware that Satan loves to use false teaching to move people away from the simplicity and the hope of the gospel. And I think you can never exhaust the importance of emphasizing that. Well, it's what's scary in a sense is that that shows it's very possible to be deceived. 
we almost think like, well, listen, I can't be deceived. You know, I've, I'm, I'm, I'm grounded in, especially if you're at a theologically minded church, I can't be deceived. You know, I've got the confession. I, I, I know the, the doctrines. I love the Bible. I'm a Bible student of scripture. You think the people that Paul's talking to didn't love the apostolic writings? You think they weren't serious about mm-hmm. theology? We can be deceived. And the deception, I think a lot of us think like that false, we think false doctrine, like, oh, okay, uh, eternal subordination of the son. <laughs> I'm not joking. I think that's a problem. Uh, all right, Me so that, that's a false doctrine that needs to be put away. But it's also sometimes like the false teachings aren't just a, 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 a doctrine that is wrong about God. Sometimes it is an ideology or a controversy that is elevated in our conscience above scripture so that it becomes the most important thing that we're about. That's a deception as well and a false teaching that leads people to trust in political powers perhaps or or vain philosophies or something outside of what scripture teaches. It It manifests itself in so many different ways, which is why the devil is as successful as he is in leading people astray. Yeah, anything that moves us away from Christ, even if they're good things in themselves. Remember, we said this last episode, the law is good. Yeah. But if you say you need Christ plus your law keeping for some kind of eschatological acceptance and justification, that's a false gospel. Right. Paul pronounces anathema on Christ plus law keeping in Galatians. And so, yeah, I mean, it could be anything. It could be politics. It could be, as you say, defending some, you know, very important secondary issue, but we make it everything and we lose sight of Christ and the truth of the gospel. Um, So I I definitely think Paul's saying that in 2 Corinthians 11, um, 3 and 4. You know, then beyond false teaching, and I would just emphasize also to your listeners, Acts 20, when Paul's talking to the Ephesian elders, he said, from among yourselves, men are going to come and rise up and mm-hmm. speak perverse things and lead many astray. So, you know, look at, look, at the, look at the apostate movement we've seen in our day, whether these guys are ultimately apostates or not. Right. I was thinking about, I was thinking about Josh Harris. I'm yeah. just going to name him. I used to listen to his sermons. I benefited from him. He has totally oh, yeah. thrown off the gospel. Now, will he come back to Christ? I hope so. I pray that. But I mean, yeah. but but look, men rise up from the church. John said they went out from us, but they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out that their works may be made known. So I think we have to be on guard, even not, not walking around with evil suspicion about everybody. Sure. But on guard about what's being said, what's being taught from even within leadership in churches that mm. are otherwise biblical. It shows you why it's so important to be a part of a healthy community of faith, right? A healthy church where you have real relationships. Because if you don't have accountability, you you, you won't have somebody to say, you're getting a little getting a little off here. Like what you know, what's going on? Just so, sometimes some friendly pressure is enough to make us go, Oh, you know what? I am. I have been getting a little wrapped up in this and it's important this thing, this issue is important to me but it's it's not the most important thing and it's certainly not what our church is supposed to be all about so thank you for that i mean i i, I think it's in people I, I think there i think it happens in, in different ways right sometimes a church sort of leads the charge and taking people off course but in terms of individuals i've seen it mostly happen when they are separated from the assembly in some way uh separated mm-hmm. from at least relationships uh gospel formed relationships 
And especially with the internet, I mean, yeah. we're sitting here doing a podcast for any number of people we don't know. Right. We might know a handful of them, but the better part we don't know. And I'm sure the majority of them are wonderful and we would have sweet fellowship. But how many people are drinking deeply from whatever they're getting on the internet? And so any, any and there is stupid, a heightened, there's a heightened danger in our day. Any stupid idea that I come up with right now, I can find a group of people that sincerely believe that and will die for it. That's, that's the problem with the internet. There's a lot of good, but like the craziest notion that is reprehensible, you'll find people that are in it. So even if you are isolated from a community of faith, that's healthy, you can find one that'll complement your particular mm-hmm. interest. Uh, or controversy to back you up. Okay, so the, this doctrine comes into the church. There's false teaching of various kinds. And by the way, is there is there one that you would is, uh, any come to mind? You think of today, false false teaching, false doctrine uh, that comes to mind that you see like it's having an impact and it needs to be addressed. I mean, I tend to think we have seen over the last two hundred some years almost doctrinal trends and momentary um, fads with regard to aberrant theological movements. So, you know, you have dispensationalism in the most radical form in the late 19th century. Um, that, That moves us into the 20th century where, you know, you've got all kinds of stuff burgeoning out of revivalism and and coming to full fruition in any number of ways. You have the Azuzu Street revival stuff. You've got the Charismania. You've got Pentecostal resurgence, whatever, restoration movement in that regard. You know, then you have inerrancy debates, right? I mean, you have those in the in the middle, late part of the 20th century. Um, denial of inerrancy of scripture, that became such a big thing. And then we had the new perspective on Paul and justification issues. And then, like you said, Trinitarian issues with eternal functional subordination. So there's always, there always seems to be a different, right now, we seem to have been on the doctrine of God for a while with aberrant views of, you know, impassibility and as you noted, EFS. Um, But there's always going to be something else. I think Satan likes to move, move these issues around. Um, Again, the danger is that we get sidetracked from the gospel itself. And so I would just say to your listeners, the more you can know robustly, especially uh, the gospel as reclaimed by the Reformation, post-Reformation guys. Not that anyone didn't believe the gospel before that. They clearly did. But because the Reformation was such a reclamation of the gospel, justification by faith alone, through grace alone, and Christ alone, centrality of Christ, sufficiency of Christ as Savior, um, I think the more they can know those those defenses of the gospel in the Reformation, post-Reformation error against the attacks of Rome and the errors of Rome, the better we're going to be equipped to handle these other things. I know that's not a blanket answer. No, it's but... good. And by the way, I know there'll be some listeners, uh, especially if they're newer to the podcast, they hear you say that like, why do we need a, a Reformation, post-Reformation articulation of the gospel? Why don't we just have the gospel? Just, just, just realize that you don't read Greek or Hebrew, and even if, so, you're relying on 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 the work of scholars to even help you read scripture. And God has given us teachers and preachers for two thousand years that we are supposed to listen to, that we're supposed to heed. And so, in you know these 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 Reformation 
uh, documents. We have such beautiful, clearly articulated uh, uh, explanations and unpackings of these doctrines, uh, just like any good pastor or preacher would do. So it's it's if you're new here, like we we are confessional. We we appreciate our, our confessions, and we benefit from them. So don't write it off, you know, thinking that you can somehow escape not having. Uh, benefited from the work of the Reformation because you wouldn't have Bibles to read without the Reformation. You'd mm-hmm. be listening to it read in Latin. Anywho. Yep. Yeah, that's right. All right. So there's another, um, no, there's another aspect of this that you have in your article though. Yeah. The other aspect is the way that Satan works through individuals and their hypocrisy hmm. in the church. And you see this in a couple places. You, you certainly see it um, in, in Peter trying to keep Jesus from going to the cross. And remember, Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You're not mindful of the yeah. things of God, but of the things of men. Peter doesn't know that he's being used. Right. And that's an important point I need to mm. make is that Satan can be working through a true believer. Right. That's good. Or through a total hypocrite in the church. And sure. we want to distinguish there. And, and that individual, including us, may not know that we're being used by him. That's that's the really frightening thing about this. Peter thought when he said to Jesus, far be it from you, you're never going to go to the cross, that he was speaking a word of protection and kindness. But he doesn't understand Jesus has to go. And if that doesn't happen, there is no redemption. There's right. no kingdom. There's no anything. Um now, the other example I've always found fascinating is Ananias and Sapphira. So probably about 15 years ago, I was a young minister preaching through the book of Acts. And I came to that passage where Ananias and Sapphira are said to lie to the Holy Spirit, to lie to God. And they're struck dead because they had said they were going to give all the proceeds from the sale of their land, and they held back some for themselves. And Peter says, you've not lied to men, you've lied to the Holy Spirit, you've lied to God. But he he says to him, why has Satan filled your heart? Right. And I listened to a sermon by William Still, the old Scottish theologian pastor. He was a mentor of Sinclair Ferguson. Okay. And William Still said in that sermon, uh, basically, it only takes one individual or one couple to destroy a Christian fellowship. Hmm. And while some might think it was severe that Peter basically at the behest of God called down judgment on them and they were struck dead, that what still says, and I've also read this in a theologian named Thomas Peck, an old early American Presbyterian, that if if that hypocrisy had been tolerated in the early church, it would have spread in a leavening way and Satan would have gotten a foothold on the purity of the church. Mm. I thought that was very interesting. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, that's helpful. So the, the this other form of, of satanic activity in the church, when it's not coming through like sort of top down or maybe just, you know, teaching whatever vain philosophies and false doctrines, it's coming through the, the lives, the, of, of, of people in the church, whether they're, you know, believers or hypocrites. So um, I think you call this like the false doctrine and false living, right? Mm-hmm. So yes. what does that look like today then? What, what, well, yeah. Cause I'm, I'm uh, cause uh, we're not, we're not in that situation, uh, you know, where people are, <laughs> I mean, certainly we, we, we certainly could lie about, you know, giving proceeds, but like, what is, how does that shape up today? 
Yeah, I think there's I think there's many answers, and I can only give a couple here just because of our time. Yeah. The first first thing I'd say is uh, this is this the fact that Satan can work through um, uh, sinful living among believers and through hypocrites in the church is is really why we need to emphasize a consistent commitment to not a heavy-handed weaponizing, but to a God-honoring, Christ-honoring, people-of-God-blessing version of church discipline. Because remember, when the man is unrepentant, he's sleeping with his father's wife, and the Corinthians are boasting about it, Paul tells them, put him out of the church, hand him over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that he may be saved in the day of Christ. If that man had been allowed to do what he did, just like Ananias and Sapphira— then the church would have just become full of immoral, sexually immoral mm-hmm. people just parading their sexual immorality mm-hmm. under the guise of, well, we're saved by grace. And so that's why church discipline plays such a big role in whatever shape and mm-hmm. form that may take. That's like the, the, um, second, the second use of the law, right? It's like the essentially, right. right? The sort of like, oh, I've seen what happens. I don't want to wind up there. That threat is, is a one of the curbs, right? Against that sort of moving in that direction. Right. And, you know, I think maybe in a more sophisticated way, because sexual immorality is such an obvious thing or, you know, extortion or whatever, that catalog of depravity. There are some things in the church that we look at and we're like, yeah, I mean, that's got to be dealt with. There's just no question about it. There are more subtle ones I would want to press on your listeners. And I know you have no doubt experienced this, Joe, and I have in my pastorates. It's it's how Satan and his host of fallen angels, um, how they can work through the discontentments and complaints and divisions that members who want their own way sow in the church. Sure. I actually think that's a very prevalent way and one that's not as easy to say, well, wait a minute, because we don't want to come and say, hey, you can't differ with me. I'm the right. pastor. Right. We're not allowed to do that. We have no authority. At the same time, congregants need to check their spirits to make sure that they are not sowing discord, that yeah. they are not being used by the evil one to disrupt the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Right. Yeah. Yeah, Totally. Yeah, I, I I definitely see that. I, I and, and again, like all of these things are they're sticky, right? They they tend to attract more of the same. And uh, and I've been in that situation in our first church plant. You know, when we had there are people that come into especially church plants, but any smaller sized church, it's easy for them to come in and say, "Hey, listen, I I've got an an idea, or I've got a direction, and I want the church to go in this direction." They try to hijack the vision of the church, the direction of the church. And they mm-hmm. typically do this in church plants and smaller churches because it's attainable to a certain degree. And because I, at that point in that church's life, hadn't maintained a very clear articulation of what we are about, what we're not about, it was easy for them to have an influence. And so I learned the hard way, the danger of that. I've seen it up close. So we've got some yeah, good... I, yeah, go ahead. What, one more quote for your listeners. Oh, yeah. John Calvin is talking about these kind of latter ways that we're talking about, sort of hypocrisy or sinful living, um, false living, um, disruptive uh, disruptive 
you know, approaches to the church and ministry. And he says this, he says, Satan assaults the church in these ways when he cannot prevail by open war. Mm. I really like that quote. No, that's helpful. That's helpful. So I, I've read Grinnell. In fact, I read that, um, I, believe it or not, I, I didn't have it didn't have anything to do. I, I read that over a summer. I, I, it's the three volume set, but I have the, the banner one volume giant thing, right? I probably didn't retain very much of it because I just kept blowing through it. But uh, great book. Uh, you, the second book that you mentioned, I didn't get that down. What was that second book you mentioned? Yeah, it's a guy named Richard Gilpin, G-I-L-P-I-N. Okay. It's called Demologia Sacra. Got it. All right. Well, and I'll send you yeah. a link to that. I've got a link to it somewhere. All right, cool. Yeah, we'll, we'll have all of these in the show notes. You guys got to get it. I also like, um, boy, I don't know, a few years ago, I read uh, Satan Cast Out by uh, Frederick Lier. Um, yes. Really, I'm a small book, guys, but it's incredible. I, I had a whole class on demonology at Moody. It was not good. This book is 10 times better than that class. It's really, really it's, helpful. It's incredible. Yeah. It's an incredible book. Yeah. It's got one of the worst covers ever. It looks like, it looks like a movie poster from 1983, a horror movie poster from 1983, which what kind of why I like it, but it's pretty cheesy, but the book is solid gold. So I'm going to add that to the list as well. Um, okay. Nick, thanks man for making time. We always love having you on. Appreciate you so much. Love your ministry. And uh, you are a pastor that makes me want to be a better pastor and you are a pastor that does make me a better pastor. You're a good influence. I, I really appreciate you. I love you very much, man. Well, thanks. I feel the same. Really? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't be on it. Just saying. Just saying. <laughs> Baptist influence on the Presbyterian over here. Uh, so, yeah, Nick, thanks so much. For all of you guys that are uh, listening to Doctrine and Devotion on the regular, thanks so much. Uh, we appreciate it. And uh, if you do enjoy the podcast, tell your friends and spread the word. Let them know that we drop new episodes every Monday and Thursday. Uh, but if you want to support the podcast and you want to see us do more, we put on some more conferences as we've done in the past, you can support the podcast by joining All Access. Doctrine and Devotion All Access gives you five theological scriptural meditations a week, Monday through Friday. It's called Weekday Wisdom. And we have another podcast called Banter of Truth. That's Jimmy and I just chopping it up and talking about stuff that maybe we don't talk about here on Doctrine and Devotion. So to sign up for that on your iPhone or whatever phone you're using, you can scroll down on your podcast player, find the link that says support this podcast, click that link and you can sign up right from there. Or you can go to doctrineanddevotion.com slash all access to read more about it on our website. So be sure to visit doctrineanddevotion.com or find us on social media at Doc and Devo on Twitter and Instagram. And of course, we're on Facebook as well. Thanks for listening, guys. God bless. Mm -hmm.